Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. Hello, everybody. This is, I, I haven't got my notes in front of me. What episode is this? This is episode 55, um, or index 055 of uh, Undersampled Radio. Welcome. Pretty Thank exciting. You. Pretty exciting show today, right, Graham? That's right. We're um, here <laughs> uh, live and direct with a with a, a new guest. Fascinating. Uh, riddle and some awesome news. So straight to it. What's happening in your world, Matt? Well, my world. Uh, it's looking at this, these things that I've written down. It's looking pretty computery right now. Well, as usual, I suppose. But um, uh, I bought a new external graphics card for my Mac. So um, it used to be. Well, okay. It still is a little bit of a hassle, but it used to be a quite a big hassle to get an external graphics card set up on a Mac. Uh, they didn't support that in the operating system, and um, some of the drivers weren't supported. Uh, but now um, it's a bit easier. I bought an Akitio uh, node Thunderbolt 3 enclosure, which basically takes care of the power requirements of the graphics card and the, um, the connections, the Thunderbolt interface, and uh, a NVIDIA GTX 1080 Ti card, uh, which is, I don't know, 3,500 uh, GPU cores and um, 11 gigs of, of RAM. So it's quite a nice, quite a nice uh, GPU for, for we're doing a lot of um, G, uh, GPR simulation right now. So that's why I bought that. So models take quite a long time to simulate. And um, it essentially, it makes things that you couldn't do or that were highly impractical because they take very, very long time to run. It makes them practical because the speed up is sort of 10 to 20 times, depending on what kind of machine you were trying to run CPU. So um, that's pretty exciting. And relatedly, um, NVIDIA had an offer for their developer network recently. It may still be going on, actually. I should look for the link in a second and put it in the notes, um, just in case it is still going on, where you could pick up a Jetson TX1 um, developer kit for only $200. I think they're normally about $500, so it's a pretty good deal. Um, what is a Jetson TX1 developer kit? Well, the, the Jetson uh, cards are basically little NVIDIA um, Tegra processors with a CPU and a bit of RAM, and they're designed for embedding. So they're designed for kind of mobile deep learning stuff or mobile image segmentations, the sort of thing you might stick on a drone or on a vehicle or something like that. Um, and the developer board is or kit is basically this thing, the Tegra processor module stuck onto a developer board with breakouts and USB and power and all this kind of thing and a cooling block. So. Um, Potentially really fun. I haven't actually had a chance to play with it yet. I'm going to bring it along to the hackathon in Houston, assuming that goes ahead as planned, uh, and see what people will do with it. Maybe is you can put some deep learning on a geophone or come up with some cunning uh, drone application or something. Um, yeah, I don't know. Have you have you 
played with anything like that, Graham? Seems sort of up your alley. Nope. <laughs> if not, um, okay. all of my, I, I mean, I have, you know, various whatever NVIDIA cards here in this room, but uh, mostly I just uh, spin up a GPU instance to do big, big jobs. Uh, yeah. We were talking the other day about having GPU as a service, which would be kind of cool. The idea being you are running something on a CPU instance and you need some more power and you just say something like, import GPU as a service, send to GPU as a service, run. And it's it would spin up a uh, GPU for you and take care of all the details and then uh, you would just have fast computation. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. So, I, and th there's, there's always half a dozen ways of doing things, but I, I feel like a lot of developers either forget or just choose to ignore the fact that these things are actually quite tricky to set up even when you half know what you're doing, at least yeah. the first time and also the second time because you've got to take notes the first time and you don't do it very often. And for kind of non-super geeky people, it's basically so difficult that it's a total roadblock. So even getting these external graphics cards set up is not particularly straightforward. And I feel like we need more things that just like break down. Press all those the barriers. button and go. Yeah. 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 Um, I did. I, I don't want at the risk of going on and on. Uh, I did want to mention a couple of things because I think uh, our guest Zoltan, who we'll meet in a second, will be quite interested in at least one of them. Um, I just read about uh, 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 the publishing company O'Reilly. Uh, so I haven't totally figured out what they're up to, but I gather it's something to do with their books. Have launched something because they, they do a lot of computing books. Um, launched something called Launchbot.io. So launchbot.io, and it looks like being a clever way to manage um, Docker containers and uh, launch notebooks sort of seamlessly and manage notebooks, Jupyter notebooks, seamlessly um, using Docker. I, I, I had a quick play with it just now for about half an hour, and it didn't, I, I mean, I got a local notebook running, but what I want is when I've got an awesome notebook and I want to share it, I just want to share it with one button, right? Have it appear on the web, not just so that someone can clone it, because obviously I can do that with GitHub, but so that they can actually run it and like away they go. Like that's what I want. One button, click. What about Binder? So Binder, uh, mindbinder.org did that almost kind of, like you could launch it from a GitHub repository with one click and it would run. Uh, it took a little bit of fiddly setup because it was also using Docker. Um, so you had to write a Docker file and stuff like that. And uh, a, a YAML file to define your environment if you wanted to use some libraries and so on. But then basically the mybinder.org, I, I can't remember who was running it, but obviously it was on a bit of a shoestring and basically the whole thing just fell over eventually and it was never up. Um, and I think to this day, mybinder.org servers just aren't working. But, um, JupyterCon was last week, and Rowan Cockett, who we had on the show at least once before, um, awesome geoscientist programmer dude in Calgary, told me that Fernando uh, Perez, who runs the Jupyter project, has funding to rescue mybinder.org, and there's already beta.mybinder.org is apparently up and running, and that's the beginning of the rescue process. So hopefully soon, mybinder.org will work again. Um, in the meantime, 
Azure Notebooks is actually quite good. And um, so I've been using uh, Microsoft Azure Notebooks. Uh, they've now got a thing where you can give it any GitHub repository with notebooks in it. You just give it the URL to the GitHub repository, and it will instantiate an instance, and you can run your notebooks just like that. You do Very need, cool. yeah, yeah, it is really cool. Um, you need a, a Microsoft account, and so you have to log in. Uh, think certainly do to you know. I th I'm pretty sure you do. Uh, certainly. Last time I checked, you needed to be able to log in. I'm just logged in all the time, so I'm not totally sure. So that's one drawback. Uh, I'd like people not to have to log in like they didn't have to with my binder. But um, yeah, anyway, check it out. It's pretty cool. And I've got one thing running, my X lines for the X lines of Python blog series that I do. Um, my GitHub Agile Geoscience um, X lines repo has the Azure setup file in it if you want to see how to um, conda install and stuff to get your environment set up because you probably want some other libraries other than just scipy numpy um, there you go yep here I am having crashed one computer during that speech so while I pull up my show notes why don't you introduce our guest I'm so sorry it's not supposed to be a speech don't call it a speech <laughs> <laughs> I I have a lot of stuff to share. Like I just you know, uh, so uh, yeah. Anyway, today we have uh, Zoltan Sylvester with us on the show, and I'll just pause to mention that um, Zoltan's an internet friend. We met on Twitter, I think, and uh, I've met him a couple times in person. Once at APG in Houston, and I can't remember if it was the same trip or I think it was a different trip. Uh, we met at a. Yeah, a really cool pub called the Petrol Station. Which I hope <laughs> it's still there and not underwater or threatened in any way. It's a really nice pub that sells fantastic Scotch eggs. So there's the Scotch egg tip for the week. And um, <laughs> welcome, Zoltan. Well, thanks for inviting me. Yeah, sure. Are you dry? Uh, here in Austin, it was, uh, it was fine. Like. I mean, uh, there was one night when it, it was kind of rough, but nothing, you know, like everything, uh, everything is, is a small thing compared to Houston. So. Good. Well, I'm glad to hear everything's okay over there. And um, we hope that everyone in Houston's doing okay. If not, check in on the software underground and tell us what's happening. Yeah, so I I was just going to ask Zoltan to because I, I I lost track a little bit of what Zoltan was up to when he moved um at the, like in the spring I guess it was um over to Austin from Houston uh, where he was previously at Shell if I'm getting the order of things correct and now you're a professor at UT Austin is that what's going uh, on so uh, I'm a research scientist uh, at the Bureau of Economic Geology. Uh, which is a research institute, uh, and it's part of the UT Austin system. Uh, right. And I, uh, I actually was. Uh, I know it's confusing. I, I've been changing jobs uh, quite a bit in the last few years. Uh, I used to be with with Shell until 2014, uh, and then I uh, right. went to Chevron. I was with Chevron for two and a half years, and then. Uh, uh, moved to Austin uh, just in December last year. Right, right. Yeah, Shell Chevron, not Chevron Shell. 
Uh, right. So, um, and how's and how, how's it going then in Austin? You must be fairly settled in now. I've seen you've been on some cool field trips. Uh, <laughs> yes. So it's it's uh, I'm I'm still uh, working on similar things that that I used to work before, uh, and the reason for that is I like doing that kind of stuff. Um, but it's it's more uh, I have a lot more say in in what exactly what projects I'm I'm working on and and uh, so it, it's it's a lot of time for for focusing on on researchy uh, ideas and uh, uh, you know more freedom a little bit more freedom to define actually what you want to do and how you want to do it. Uh, we are so we are basically a, a, a group of people here uh, and uh, called the Quantitative Classics Laboratory, and right. uh, we are funded by an industry consortium, uh, which is mostly uh, uh, oil companies. Okay, and who, um, who are the folks that are kind of running that um, that lab? So uh, Jake Kovalt is uh, uh, is uh, uh, the the principal investigator, if you want, uh, uh, and uh, he has a very similar background to mine. Uh, 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 sedimentologist, mostly focusing on deep water uh, sedimentation, um, and then uh, uh, Pete Flake uh, is another research scientist. Uh, he's uh, he's more uh, uh, fluvial slash shallow marine uh, oriented sedimentologist. Uh, he has done a lot of work in, in Alaska uh, and uh, does a lot of outcrop mapping and, uh, and uh, descriptions and just, you know, good old field work uh, with, some, with some new techniques uh, 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 lately. Um, and then, um, uh, we had uh, Glenn Sharman, uh, uh, was a, used to be a postdoc just until a month ago or so. Uh, he uh, he was with Conoco before. Uh, uh, he's an excellent uh, uh, outcrop guy. He's also an excellent computer geek. Uh, uh, very quickly picked up Python, uh, uh, and and he's doing in general. He's a he's a fantastic guy. Unfortunately, he he left because he is starting the he has started in fact a assistant professor position in uh, Arkansas. Oh, okay. Well, it sounds like you guys have an awesome group. What yeah. uh, what are you working on? Uh, so one one of the things I used to work on while in the industry was uh, uh, submarine channels. Uh, that was one of the main things, uh, and uh, uh, I find uh, uh, especially sinuous channels or meandering channels so fascinating that I just can't stop doing it. So uh, uh, I I've been. Uh, Looking at uh, uh, just in general, how do you how do you uh, model meandering properly, and how do you build mo uh, reservoir models uh, uh, once you have the meandering part figured out? Um, just recently, I went to a, a conference in Calgary. Uh, the the uh, I think it was the eleventh international. Uh, International conference on fluvial sedimentology, something like that. I might have 
not gotten it right, but uh, it, anyway, it was a, like a big gathering of, of uh, people who are working on fluvial geomorphology, fluvial sedimentology, uh, stratigraphy, uh, really, really good conference. I, it was my first foray into, into fluvial uh, hmm. subjects and uh, it was great. I learned a lot. I, I got some new ideas going, so I'm, I'm pretty excited about uh, actually doing some work on fluvial systems. Because you've been focused on deep water at, uh, almost exclusively, uh, right. but the more I look, the more interesting it becomes. You know, like how far you can take the fluvial analogy uh, in in into the deep water, and, uh, and and what are the differences, and and you know, there's some divergence of opinions uh, along mm. those lines. Some people would. would argue that uh, submarine channels are so fundamentally different from fluvial channels that there's almost no point of comparing them. Uh, right. I'm more, uh, I, I'm, I'm a big fan of the idea that a lot of what we know about fluvial systems can be translated uh, in some one way or another uh, into uh, uh, learnings about deep water channels. So, are you going to start uh, modeling fluvial systems as well? Yes, yes, because I, I, I already started doing that, uh, uh, and I think the underlying uh, bare bones, um, um, not algorithm, but process uh, is is uh, is essentially the same for for uh, highly senior systems. Uh, it's it's. Uh, Essentially, an instability driven by the, you know, the centrifugal force, and, and uh, ultimately, it's not that complicated. I, I, I think, depending on what, how far you want to go in the details, but into the details, but yeah, tell tell us a bit about the modeling. Uh, you know, we we've seen. Well, I'll get I'll get to your blog in a minute, but uh, you've got some cool outputs of uh, sinuous channel models that run forward in time. Uh, how do you how do you build those things? What what are your inputs and and how does the workflow go? Right, so I'm um, uh, it, it, I'm using Python uh, uh, for pretty much everything nowadays, and uh, it's the 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 core of the model is probably like half a page. Uh, it's essentially uh, uh, comes down to the idea that. Uh, the migration uh, rate of a sinuous channel, of a meandering channel, uh, is a function of not just the local curvature, but the weighted sum of the upstream curvatures at every point. Hmm. Uh, oh, so it's it's just a it's just a summation of curvatures, a weighted sum of the curvatures upstream from the point where you are looking at. Uh, and that's that's basically you multiply that by by a constant, and you got the migration rate. Hmm. And uh, if if you try to run the program with just using the just the local curvature, like you would, for example, if you want to calculate the the force acting on a car in a curve, of course you uh, using the local curvature is fine. Sure. Hmm. Uh, but if you do that for a river. Uh, the model is not going to work. It basically it's unstable, right? Because the state of, is because the state of the system is determined sort of in a uh, t 
time, you know, if you take like a volume slug, like the flux through one section of uh, channel is affected by the upstream curvatures because there's sort of like a fluid history there. Right, and the river doesn't, uh, I have to be careful what I say because it's not, it's not that easy actually to describe it or, or maybe I just don't know, but uh, the river doesn't know, of course, that there is a, there is a bend coming up. So, right. so it's going to run the high velocity core is going to, with a delay, it's going to run into the outer bank and that's where the erosion happens. Uh, and uh, uh, if, if you take only, if you only have a, the same radius of curvature, but only a little turn, uh, that's going to have a smaller effect uh, right. than uh, having a, you know, the curve is wrapping all around the circle, the same circle, then that's going to have a, you know, the, the, the river is going to go really hard into the outer bank and, and then the, the erosion, therefore the migration rate is going to be larger. <laughs> this is pretty fascinating. I've never thought yeah. about this before. Wait, um, in case audience, you're not following the whole conversation we're talking about a starting from basically a flat piece of earth uh running volume flow of some fluid across that and as you uh introduce curvature into the system the the stream of the channel will meander according to as we've just learned upstream curvature properties how far I guess it's subjective according to velocities and things, but how far back in the, the spatial sense do you have to, do you see the effects of curvatures? It's, uh, it's basically, it's not a long distance. It's uh, 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 on the scale of a few channel widths upstream. Oh, uh, is that all? Okay. Uh, yes, but that matters because what happens is that the, the, um, in, in a, if you are driving the, the biggest uh, uh, force on the car is going to be at the point of highest curvature of the road. Sure. Uh, uh, in a river, the point of highest erosion is going to be delayed downstream from the point of highest curvature because you are summing curvature. So the, the maximum migration actually is going to happen a little bit again, maybe a, a Couple of couple of channel widths downstream from the the apex of the bend, hmm. Hmm. And, and and again, if you don't if you don't take that put that into the algorithm, then it, it doesn't work. And hmm. it, whereas if you do, then it's you get these beautiful uh, part part of the reason I'm interested in this is is that it's just patterns are so beautiful that. Uh, <laughs> It's it is amazing. Art and science. I, I again, I know nothing about it. I I, I saw the outputs on, on your blog and on Twitter. Uh, it, he's got these amazing forty models of of channel incision into a into a volume. It's it's really very beautiful. Um, so then the the next part of the modeling must be to derive reservoir characteristics based on the uh, the channels, right? Is, are you, are you doing that work too? Oh, uh, yes, yes. So uh, it, the idea is that uh, uh, if obviously in, in, a, in an industry setting, you are interested in 
inputting porosity permeability. Uh, uh, well, uh, let, let me step back uh, uh, just a step. Uh, so what I talked about so far is just giving you a, like a, a skeleton of a, of a channel system, if you want. You only have the center lines. Uh, you have to build a 3D model out of that. So there are a few steps there that, that uh, we do. Uh, and that's that's uh, probably the most, uh, uh, how should I call it? It's, uh, uh, it's a little bit like using Adobe Illustrator to, uh, <laughs> to fill in the, the details. So I'm, I, I think there's room for improvement there, but uh, obviously I don't do that in Illustrator, I do that in Python, but we are wrapping these surfaces around those, uh, those skeletons. Uh, and then the next step is to fill them with properties. And uh, uh, essentially the, the idea is to use grain size, some kind of distribution of grain size as a function of, of the model, uh, locations in the model uh, to distribute porosity and permeability. And, uh, the, and when I say uh, a proxy for grain size, it can be something as simple as uh, coarse at the bottom of the channel and fines as you, uh, finer as you go higher up uh, above the channel. And especially in deep marine settings, this is a pretty strong, uh, we, we found uh, before uh, when, when I was still at Shell, we, we did quite a bit of work on this and we found that there is a lot of dependence on grain size on how high up in the current you are, how high up in the channel you are. It finds really quickly. Hmm. Do, do you think there's any possibility of being able to model these systems with sort of just uh, with pure physics because you know you're sort of modeling the there's some geometric constraints that you've introduced and and then you've got to kind of look at distributions from the field and kind of map those into the geometry that you create but what yeah. about just sort of go straight to the grain size distribution by distributing grains yes uh, so uh, the answer is yes um uh, and there are people uh, and, and groups, uh, research groups, who are who are doing that as we speak. Um, uh, I think it's it's fantastic stuff and, and super interesting. Uh, uh, <laughs> fantastic, I, awesome, or fantastic like a fantasy? Uh, <laughs> well, the, the, I think it's fantastic, like for real. But uh, uh, it's, I think where the challenge is 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 the you know if you want to build a, uh, um, like it, it basically takes days or weeks to run one of these models sure uh, yeah. and uh, and then uh, you have a, a humongous amount of detail but uh, how do you actually use it in, in aside from having this beautiful model which you can slice and dice and learn from it which is uh, i think that's one of the the most useful aspects of this that it's like a digital sandbox and you can learn a lot just by running these numerical experiments. I think when it comes to actually applying it in reservoir modeling, uh, that's that's uh, that's hard. Because the timeline is too long. Uh, partly because you it it computationally it's, it's very expensive, uh, and uh, partly because uh, how do you uh, you know the usual problems uh, and I have with my models I have actually similar problems how do you uh, condition it to wells and uh, do you use train it do you use it as a training image 
and then use smooth point statistics, all these issues uh, uh, come to surface. So I, I think it's, it's definitely, uh, uh, I think it's, uh, it, it has its place uh, in both in academia and industry. It's an interesting, uh, uh, it's probably the future. Uh, but I also think that simpler models uh, have also their advantages and, and we can still learn quite a bit from, from simple models. You know, there's, I, I, think, I think Chris Pella made that point and probably others as well, that if you built a model that is exactly as complicated as real life, uh, then you are back to trying to understand your model because it's so complicated, just like nature. Uh, so models, by definition, have to be simpler than than the system you are trying to model. Maybe I'm stating the obvious here, but <laughs> yeah, no, I, I mean, um, yeah, I mean, I suppose it, it's sort of obvious uh, in hindsight. But I mean, you, the temptation with modeling is to try and is to keep adding parameters, right? Until exactly. you've until you've taken care of all of the things that you perceive as variables, but but then you've lost it's very difficult to keep track. Well, A, computation becomes very expensive, like you say, so you can't explore as much of the kind of parameter space uh, because it just takes too long. So that's one nice thing about simple models is you can run a billion of them in the same time you can run one complex one, but you also lose sight of the interaction between the different uh, dimensions. Right. Yes. And, um, yeah, I'm, I'm finding that having, uh, you know, five input parameters <laughs> right. is, is plenty. Uh, yeah. uh, I, I have a hard time keeping track and uh, doing conditioning and... Uh, right. But I do wonder if there's a smart way to kind of use the, get the best of both worlds somehow and, you know, some, I don't know, somehow have a, a modeling strategy that exploits both types of model simultaneously yeah i think i think one of the ways i i think you can combine the two is that uh, for example if i build uh, a nice looking channel surface um, uh, in maybe in a way that is not uh, it, it kind of resembles what you see on the seafloor or in google mm -hmm. earth but uh, it's not there's not a lot of a whole lot of physics behind it. Uh, and then you run one of these uh, very sophisticated models on that surface right. and see where sand is going and where mud is going, and then analyze the results and try to distill them into simpler uh, uh, rules for distributing the sediment in your model. Right, I right. think those kinds of links are, are, uh, are a good way to, to uh, combine the two yeah. types of models. So you do the you do the things that require the kind of large scale, multi-channel, field scale things cheaply, and you do the kind of core scale to yes. you know prospect scale stuff expensively, and then you sort of merge them in scale space. Yes. yes. Yeah, yeah. I like Con that. Conditional optimization. Right. Yeah. Boundary, sort of a boundary conditioning or something. Because um, then you've also got, uh, do you guys do any physical modeling? Because, you know, that, that's another avenue that people go down instead of numerical stuff is they'll just build a tank and start distributing sediment around that. Do you, 
is that something that goes on at UT or BEG? There's definitely a lot of that going on at UT, uh, uh, at the, the department, the Department of Geosciences, uh, 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 David Morig and, uh, and uh, Wonsa Kim uh, have, uh, uh, have a fairly big, uh, not fairly, it's a big facility uh, here on the, we are on the Pickle Research Campus and uh, the, the flume tanks uh, that they are using are uh, just across the street from here. Yes. So we do have plans to work with, with them uh, on, uh, on uh, physical modeling. Uh, so far, I haven't done much of that. Um, yeah, I, you know, yeah, again, it would be really interesting to see a sort of, well, as a total outsider, my perception is that there's a lot of stuff happens in the flume tanks that then gets computerized somehow. But is anybody also going the other way down that street and sort of, again, you could almost build the container with your less expensive modeling, geometric modeling, if you like, and then try and replicate that somehow in the flume tank and do the tricky part, but on a different scale and then bring that back in. Um, it feels like with sort of 3D printing and some of these awesome flume tank geometry things, like yes. you, say, you could do that. Uh, to some degree that has already happened. Uh, mm. uh, there are, people have built, uh, uh, models of uh, like a built a channel surface like a hmm. submarine channel surface and of course they did this for rivers as well uh, and then you would you would let loose a turbidity current in a in a predefined channel and see what happens in the in the bends whether where do you get more overflow flow and and those kind of uh, problems uh, one of the uh, difficult parts in that is that it's hard to get a proper scaling between the channel and the turbidity current uh, and ideally you would run these experiments uh, so that uh, the channels are self-forming and 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 then they are you know you know that they are the channels that those turbidity currents would like to create it's not something superimposed and then you don't really know whether you have mm, an equilibrium or quasi-equilibrium condition or not. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Yeah, I just, um, I, I wonder a little bit <laughs> if, this might be a horrible idea, but if, if you can somehow bring physical modeling into the computational fold, I'm imagining a sort of API for your flume tank where it's like your your modeling suggests that there's a lot of uncertainty around a particular parameter so it, it sets up an experiment in the bloom tank to determine what happens there rather than running an expensive numerical model right so this is ridiculous but yeah uh you get what it, I'm it is <laughs> I, I I guess I mean uh, you know the the, the classic uh, way of using flume tank tank experiments is is uh, I guess one of the classic ways is that uh, I keep talking about turbidity currents because that's what I know about. But uh, you would have a, a, a numerical model for a turbidity current, uh, and then mm -hmm. uh, you would run uh, some simple flume experiments. 
uh, obviously at fairly small scale. Uh, and then you would uh, uh, calibrate and validate your model so that it reproduces given the same uh, uh, initial and boundary conditions as in the flume experiment, do I get uh, the same results for velocity right. profiles, for sediment deposition, sediment concentration, and so on. And then you say, okay, I'm able to match these, uh, these experiments, and then uh, I can, I have some, some confidence that I can run the model at a larger scale, much larger scale, which is impossible to, to model in the flume tank. Right, I, right. I guess that's the, the, one of the key ideas behind flume uh, tank modeling. Tell us a bit about decompaction modeling. Yes, yeah, so that's uh, I. That was a little bit of a like a little side project that uh, yep. I became interested uh, a while ago, and uh, uh, the reason I became interested is that uh, we uh, uh, spent a lot of time looking at uh, outcrop analogs. Uh, analogs for reservoirs and uh, that work is basically comes down to to put it in a very simple way it's a mapping of where sand is and where mud is uh, and uh, so we have these maps of outcrops uh, and uh, we never well never say never but usually don't we don't think about uh, how this would look like if it was decompacted hmm. uh, and uh, I think the answer to that question is uh, uh, it would look the same and it would look pretty boring if you have a stratigraphy that is close to layer cape, because then you are just changing the, you know, the thickness of the layers, but nothing interesting happens. It becomes much more interesting when you have like interfingering of mud and sand, and then, uh, then it becomes pretty interesting. So what I was trying to do is to uh, uh, decompact these outcrop panels or maps uh, and see what, how the architecture changes and, and so on. Yeah, it's, it's, it's nice, um, nice to be able to do that programmatically too because I've, I feel like I've seen people trying to do that on uh, sort of a 2D section but in a way, it doesn't make all that much sense to just decompact everything because there was a sort of progressive, there's a time element, right? You have to yeah, do yeah. it in, in the time dimension as well. Yeah, I, I, initially I started uh, doing just that, basically saying, oh, I, I just multiply every mud layer right. becomes, <laughs> you know, this much thicker and then the sand layer becomes that much thicker, but that doesn't work. Like, no. I mean, it, you get something, but it's it's almost it's certainly incorrect. and. and yeah, you have to do it iteratively and and uh, uh, yes, you have to decompact in time steps. Yeah. yeah, so it's a really nice application. Now, did that, uh, when I read that post originally, I think you hadn't published the code yet and I haven't, Zoltan's uh, so GitHub uh, repo, everyone, is um, Zed Sylvester. His Twitter handle, by the way, is ZZ Sylvester. Um, but did uh, did you publish the decompaction stuff? Uh, part of it, yes. The the basically the the groundwork, if you want the the one D decompaction. Um, right. Okay. Uh, it's cool. it's out there. I have an I uh, a Jupyter notebook. Uh, nice. 
I did not include the part where, uh, which I think is the easier part, where you take a take a two D image uh, and apply the same codes to to every column, and okay. then basically you get what you want yeah. that way. Uh, in the meantime, I discovered and and. Uh, uh, that uh, somebody did a much more sophisticated decompaction Python uh, notebook, um, oh, really, uh, which I uh, uh, haven't had time yet to play with it, but uh, it looks very nice. Uh, if if you go to my blog, it's and this decompaction post, they are in the comments. You will find that uh, okay, uh, that work linked to uh, 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 Jan Zaretsky's. Uh, uh, work is okay. at uh, Saudi Aramco. Yeah, these right. are all linked in the show notes if anyone's looking for that. Um, yeah, it's kind of the like at first you sort of think, oh, you know, rats. If only I'd, if only I'd known about that or whatever. But actually, you need, you know, I mean, I, I imagine in your case, you said it was a side project. You're doing it as a sort of learning and exploration exercise, right? It's a journey of discovery of not not just the code, but also the the natural side of it, the natural science, and um, it, you know, so this is, I, I think, to look sometimes to non-programmers, it's like, why are there so many packages for things? Why has this person replicated all this work? Well, it's because they were. That's how we think, right? Yeah, when you're so a learned, computational yeah. scientist, it's like you think in code, and so you need to express it. And um, I find that I don't really understand. Uh, 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 something until I try to, and it may be a super simplistic way, but if I try to code it up, then then I really start to to understand what's going on. Yeah, it's, it's just like when you try and write about something or when you try and teach something to someone else, when you write code about it, you suddenly realize, oh, I actually don't know how that thing works, right? And now I suddenly I need to know. Um, so it to totally forces you to, uh, figure stuff out, and you know, I'd sort of stopped using things like textbooks much at all until I started coding, and then it suddenly you realize you actually need all these fundamental equations yes. all the time. And uh, I started buying textbooks again so that I've got these things to refer to because they're often not in Wikipedia or wherever else you might go. Um, yeah, that's really cool. So do uh, do check out Zoltan's blog if you haven't seen it. It's called Hindered Settling. Um, I think I've got the URL somewhere. It's on Blogger, right? Uh, so it's, it, it's have you got a URL for it? It's uh, WordPress. It's it's hinderedsettling.com. Yeah. Also linked in the notes. Uh, okay, hinderedsettling.com. There we go. Yeah, I must be looking at some old site there. Um, yeah, so do check it out. It's you know, um, one of those, especially if you're getting into coding, especially with Python. Uh, it's a good one to know about because uh, Zoltan often publishes um, his these side projects and uh, code projects where he's actually exploring something numerically. So definitely worth worth knowing about. Oh, Matt, are you ready to do the uh, riddle? <laughs> Wait, why do I need to be ready? <laughs> Because <laughs> you have to, uh, you have to correct me when I say something. Oh, I see. I'm ready to listen. Yeah, sure. <laughs> okay. I want to. I want to uh, introduce this section by highlighting that none of our listeners submitted a correct answer, which is the first time that's happened, right? 
Okay, yeah, wow. Did Ari not submit anything? No. Oh, okay, well, that's... He flat. only submits if he has <laughs> he's every possible correct solution. <laughs> With a full <laughs> notebook. And it's amazing. <laughs> tests and everything. All right, so here's the question. Should, I guess I have to read the whole question again. I'm, <laughs> I apologize. I'm going to do this as quickly as possible, and then we'll get back to the rest of the show. Okay, so here's the question. You have n users in a Petrel project, and each one of them has interpreted one seismic horizon. The horizon files are indicative of the author's index. So, for example, author one's horizon would be one dot horizon or whatever. Okay, so uh, that means that all of the horizon files exist in the set one to n inclusive. So last month, the project was corrupted, and the only backup is stored on tape reels in the data room. There's one horizon per tape, and the tapes are randomly just sort just thrown into this room. OK, so the users, each of the users gets to enter the tape room and examine n over 2 of the tapes only, gets to read n over 2 files only. Then they have to put the tapes back in the order that they found them. And they are not allowed to speak with the other users during their examination phase. However, they are allowed to speak beforehand, before any of the um, examination begins. Let's say they go out to the, to the bar the night before, have a beer, and discuss the strategy which they're going to use to all find their respective interpreted horizons. Because if each one of them can't find their individual horizons, they'll all be fired. But if every single one of them recovers their horizon, they will all be allowed to keep their jobs. So. The question so this, is: This is actually how most oil and gas companies operate, right? <laughs> I <laughs> didn't say true story. <laughs> I didn't say your little your little quip about the file name. Do you want me to say your? Do you want me? To, this is one of Matt's favorite jokes. Okay, you see that? I wrote that in there for you. I said oh, the, the actual the name of the horizon is desand underscore pre stack underscore final underscore January twenty seventeen underscore final underscore X, where X is the author's number. Anyway, the question is. The question is, um, at the strategy meeting the night before, what strategy do they come? What's the best strategy they can come up with? And more importantly, what's the probability of them all keeping their jobs using that strategy? Okay, so um, there's two reasons we could have received no correct answers. One is our audience is quite small. Uh, two is the solution is completely non-intuitive, at least to me. And I find it fascinating. So here it goes. All right, so if each user were to randomly select tape, tapes and read them, they would only have what probability of finding their horizon event? Does uh, end tapes, they only get to examine in over two? Half. Half. However, there are n users, so you have to apply that 50% probability n times. So the probability of n users all randomly guessing their correct horizon thingamajig is one half to the n. Wait, uh, which... this 
Maybe I asked this last time. I don't think I did. Are they, are they allowed to communicate with each other after they've done their no. inspection? Okay. No. That's annoying. Yep. So, uh, what kind of company is this? <laughs> one half to the N. Who's the seismic data manager of this place? One half to the N rapidly becomes you're not going to keep your job. Right. Okay. So, uh, are they screwed? The answer is no, not necessarily. So, here's the best strategy each user, upon entering the tape room, reads tape index. X, which is the author's number. All right, so uh, author one will first read tape one. Now, right. when they read tape number one, they then will read the next tape corresponding to the horizon number on the tape. So, and they'll go keep doing that, okay, for all, all of their uh, n over two guesses. So, for example, if user one goes in there, they'll read tape one. If tape one contains file one, whoop, you're done because they found their file. However, if tape one contains file four, they'll then read tape four. Mm -hmm. If tape four contains file 23, they'll then read tape 23 okay. and on and on and on until or unless they find, they find horizon number one. So what you're actually trying to find here is the what you're interested in is the longest tape reading cycle length that can result in a user finding her horizon file and that in this case is n over two okay because that's the number of uh, guesses or choices they get more specifically we're looking for all the possible cycle lengths less than or equal to the number of random guesses from the set the number of outcomes for a random permutation of tapes to have at most one cycle length greater than n over 2 is n choose q, where q is the desired cycle length, which in this case would be n over 2. So it would be users choose users over 2. Okay? So, therefore, the probability that all n users find their files is equal to the probability that a random permutation of the tapes provides no cycles longer than n over 2. So like out of all the permutations you could have with n tapes, you're only interested in the n over 2 cases. Okay. Combinatorially speaking, this probability is, here's the answer finally, I apologize, <laughs> equal to 1 minus quantity harmonic number n minus harmonic number n over 2. Okay? Do I need to review before I before I tell you the weird part? Should I review what a harmonic number is? Yeah, I, I don't know what a, what's a harmonic number. It's the, it's, uh, the nth harmonic number is the sum of the reciprocals of oh, the first okay. n natural numbers. So Harmonic number n is 1 over 1 plus 1 over 2 plus 1 over 3. Okay. Okay. So, okay, let me just say it again. Okay, so 1 minus quantity, harmonic n minus what, harmonic what, what, n. What do you mean two. when you say quantity like that? What does that mean? Uh, okay, let me go backwards. Harmonic number n yeah. minus harmonic number n over 2. Yeah. That is that is a quant that is a quantity. Okay. So you want one minus that quantity. 
Oh, I see. You're using that as parentheses. Grouping. Is that that's a math thing? Is it? I've never heard that before. <laughs> yeah, it's a math it's thing. a gram thing. I heard it either. No, it's a math thing. It's you can find it on at least Urban Dictionary. I'm going to start using that a lot. Do it's very, it's very geeky. Um, okay, so whenever I want someone not quite to know what I'm talking about, I'm going to use it. <laughs> if you talk to a math person, they will know what you're talking about. Okay, listen. So here's the weird part. That answer. <laughs> it gets weirder. Okay. Yeah. Asymptotically decreases to 30% as in N increases. Wait. Yeah. As N increases, yes. it decreases to 30%. Yes. 0.3, exactly. Uh, no, in fact, not exactly 0.3. Okay. What then? Point three, uh, I don't know, something, some, yes, some, some very small number over 30%. So if you have 100 users, it's basic, you're basically at 30%. And it, as you increase, you get even closer to that whatever number. That's really strange. Yeah. So is this week's Riddle Me This to explain that? <laughs> oh. Yeah. In an intuitive way. Whatever. <laughs> yes. Yeah. It's, uh, I mean, you can kind of see the cyclic permutation part of the riddle, right? So you've got, you've got cycles that you take, the users take cycles through the uh, total input space or whatever. Mm -hmm. There's a certain number of those which, yes, work, which is, you know, n over 2 or less, and a certain number of those which don't work, which is greater than n over 2. So if you as you stretch out that n thing, right, that y, proportion yeah. settles. Right. Okay. Yeah, right. Okay. It so feels I'm, almost like uh, um, it feels almost like you could solve that problem in graph theory. If you solve that problem in graph theory and submit it as a Jupyter notebook, <laughs> I don't know what I'm talking about, but requests. the way you're talking about cycles and things, it sounds like. <laughs> Something you could almost do, but it's what it's combinatorics. So it's what what is that number theory? Yeah, I don't, I don't know what I'm talking about. That, it feels like a very esoteric problem, but it is fascinating result. Yeah, I it's kind of shocking to me, but maybe I but just I haven't. haven't <laughs> <laughs> the, the quantity result is very surprising. Hey, um. Tom, what are you reading at the moment? Um, I'm uh, reading a fun book. Like, uh, in other words, I'm reading it for fun. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, it's called uh, The Angry Chef. Uh, and uh, I found this, this uh, writer slash chef who calls himself The Angry Chef, uh, I think on Facebook or something like that. And uh, He's really funny, and uh, is it a recipe book? It doesn't. It doesn't look. Like uh, no, not really. It's more of a. Uh, sometimes he does get really angry uh, <laughs> about, uh, about uh, you know like pseudo scientific stuff about food uh, things, ah. all kinds of diets. He's not not a big fan of diets and uh, <laughs> um, things like. Uh, uh, 
you know fat is bad for you or sugar is bad for you and end of discussion those yeah. these extreme points of view uh, he, he he's he's uh he's scientifically uh deconstructing these things and that's not a good word but uh, anyway and uh, uh he's also funny in this at the same time and uh, he he has a lot of fun with uh, uh Gwyneth Paltrow uh, her uh, group.com and so it's it's uh, recommended there's there's quite a bit of science in it actually he, he talks to uh, people who write you know oh, okay uh, peer-reviewed publications on sugar and interesting uh, all kinds of food yeah that's kind of neat it seems like that whole area is is really rife with pseudoscience and fads you know obviously and so I, exercise science i would say is fairly close behind with but you know it's always quite amusing seeing all the uh the, the one of the current things seems to be i noticed we were watching quite a lot of the iaaf world championships because it was quite nicely live streamed by the iaaf on youtube um so it was quite easy to watch it and what is it with these sort of weird bandages and sort of Oh yeah, tape that athletes are wearing these days. Yeah. Really do anything? I just thought your skin was elastic enough that all it does is stretch a bit of your skin. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know what they're up to. Get, let's try it. Let's put a big M on your back next time you go for a run and see if you. <laughs> Matt, what are you? What are you reading? Uh, well, I'm reading. I'm reading a sporty book at the moment a kind of a memoir by an athlete called um Killian Journey who's uh um well he calls himself a mountaineer primarily I sort of think of him as a, a um an ultra runner but I guess he does a lot of skiing and he's also done some record ascents of Everest relatively recently and um some other things like that but anyway he's a phenomenal kind of mountain runner and endurance athlete and I don't know it's you know I mean he he's not a writer let's say <laughs> but, but um so and and being a sort of Catalan you know I, I spent quite a lot of time in Catalonia and he's so he's quite uh effusive and descriptive and kind of it's given to these sort of flights of slightly poetic fancy about the mountains and his connection with the mountains and all this sort of thing but um so I've, I've been skipping a couple of paragraphs i admit here and there but um yeah just reading about what like for example he did a traverse of the pyrenees um which uh i've also done part of that route um on foot not running but he did it in eight days and just just reading about what how on earth a person could, it's 800 kilometers so oh. 500 miles um and mountains like serious mountains how a person can do that i mean i went for a run this morning i've been running every day so far this week which is unusual for me i'm not normally i'm like four or five a week at most um and you know three or four days of running every day and i'm already like oh i feel a bit stiff and i've ran <laughs> like you know six miles or whatever um this guy somehow gets up day after day going yeah i'm gonna do another 65 miles today you know and somehow eat and not get injured and anyway so i it's it's kind of amazing 
It, it blows me away how almost anything you can sort of think of or describe, somebody's not only kind of doing it really well, but doing it on a scale or a level or a speed or whatever that's totally incomprehensible. Not, not just like, wow, that's amazing, but like, I, I, can't, I, I can't even understand how that's yeah, it's, possible. It's, it's, I find that this, it's, these things are especially shocking if you, you know, if you try running in, in those kinds of mountains, it's, it's just unbelievable. Like I, I'm, I'm out after a few miles, I, I'm basically slowed to a, to a jog or well, to, a, to a slow walk. And, and I, I just don't understand how actually so many people can just keep running yeah. forever. Yeah, yeah, for hours and hours and hours. And yeah, it's, it's pretty cool. Humans are awesome, I guess. <laughs> Although Keegan might might be from a different planet or something. Yeah, yeah. I mean, one of his in that Trans-Pyrenean thing, one of his coaches said, you know, his he's running with buddies often who are doing shorter segments of the race, and you know, their heart rates are what most people's heart rates would be at when they've been running all day, kind of you know, one thirty, one forty, one fifty. Killian's is eighty. <laughs> you know, so I mean, he's he's clearly biomechanically unusual which yeah. i guess these people always are you know exceptional in some way but yeah remarkable so there you go awesome. it's called uh it's called run or die <laughs> so yeah <laughs> if i'm not here next week that's what's happened <laughs> yes indeed um what are you reading i'm reading Democracy in America by, I don't know, you have a better, you have a good French accent, Matt, pronounce that name. Where is it? It's in the show notes, aren't you in there? Alexis de Tocqueville. It was written in 1830. Oh. In his uh, adventures to the United States. I was thinking last week about the why democracy exists at all and exists the way it does in in the united states huh. and i don't i couldn't come up with a good answer so i wanted to read something from the um pre-civil war uh era as an like an examination an outsider's examination uh, I, i've just started and it's it's already it's fascinating so i would back. it sounds it's, unreadable no no it, it really is <laughs> it really is okay. fascinating um, but it's very long. I, I think it's 1,200 pages or something. So I'll report back to you next week when I'm one quarter of the way through. Does it have any pictures? <laughs> Not yet. Okay, so that's, that's, there's no way I could read that book. Before we sign off today, I wanted to mention that uh, Houston, Galveston, Corpus Christi, many of the coastal towns in Texas get really hammered by Hurricane Harvey. And if you're looking for a way to help out, you can... Uh, donate to various organizations and also I've put a link at the bottom of the show notes today where you can find some volunteering um, efforts going on that you can that you can um, help out with. Zoltan, thanks for joining us on the show. It's awesome. Thank you very much for having me. Cheers, hope, to hope to see you back sometime and we, I, I would love to learn a little bit more about the um, Meandering channel modeling, or, or we should we expect any of this stuff to go uh, open source? 
Uh, hopefully, yes. It it will take some time, but uh, uh, partly because uh, because it it needs a lot of cleaning and uh, you know before it goes public. But uh, yes, cool. In, in the long term, yes. Cool. I look forward to it. And hopefully we can have you back to talk about it some more. Guys, we will see you next week on Understand Radio. Bye. Bye, Bye everyone. Bye.